Who are you? This isn't a trick question. Um, what, what makes you, you? What, what, how do, how do you um, arrive at your identity? What's, what, maybe another way to ask it, what's the most important thing about you? Or as a Christian, as Fan kind of alluded to this in his prayer, what, what gives you that sense of being enough with God, having, having that sense of enoughness with the Lord? What do you look to? Um, I, I think it's often something we tend to do as we look, we look at our performance. We look at what we do, what we abstain from, what we, what we give ourselves to. We look at uh, the circumstances of our life and the situation of our life. And this is the exact same thing the Corinthians were doing. And, and what Paul's calling them to do, what he's calling us, what the Lord is calling us to do today is, is don't, don't look for your enoughness with the Lord in the circumstances of your life and in what you do, what you don't do. Look for your enoughness with the Lord in, in the call of God and Jesus Christ. We look to him that Christ has purchased, he secured our enoughness with God in his death. He has bought us with a price. All right, I've given you the conclusion of the sermon, and so let's get there now. But I, I, I want you to see that, and we'll come back to that, that line, because as what Van read a moment ago, it might seem like what in the world is happening here. It's just a few verses, but it, it might throw you for a loop. Here's the situation. The, the, the Christians there in Corinth and the church there in, in the city of Corinth they were very, very conscious of the fact that they were changed people. They, they had been radically saved by the grace of God. The, the Lord found them, as it were, in the, the moral gutters of, of that society, and, and he snatched them out through the gospel. Remember in chapter 6, he's, uh, Paul said that they, they once were sexually immoral, idolaters, adult, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, Swindlers. They were lost, blind, dead in their trespasses, Paul says elsewhere. But the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ shone in on them and, and, and made them new creatures in Christ. And so, so now pulsating through their veins was this consciousness that they were changed people. They were new. All things now were new for them in Christ. Now, many of us today, we, we understand, we, we understand we are changed people, aren't we? We, we, Christ loved us and he sought us and he saved us and he, and he's made us new. We've been born again by God's spirit. We are different people than we once were. Amen. We're, we're changed and it's not because we don't look and say, well, it's because of, of my own internal, uh, moral personal renovating work that I did in my life, we say, no, it's all the regenerating work of God's spirit. That's why I'm changed. We realize that. And so now perhaps some of you in this room or some of you listening online even, you ha have, have you been changed? Maybe you haven't been and you know you need to be changed. And so the message for you today is not what, he's what the Lord is saying to us who are in Christ, remain as you, uh, where you are, but the message to you is move from where you are. And by God's grace, look to Christ. Trust in him and you may be a, that you may be a new creation in him. You can do that today. Cry out to the Lord and, 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 and acknowledge your sin before him 
in your hopelessness apart from Christ and his, his redeeming work on the cross and through his death and resurrection and, and turn to him and trust in him and what he has done alone to save you. And you could be new. But for most of us, we, 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 we are here because we are new. And the Corinthians, they're conscious of the fact that they're changed people. That was good. But where they struggled, however, was with how that new spiritual reality meshed with their present physical circumstances. This is where they're actually living. They had these wrong ideas that we've been talking about the body, about, about the physical. And so they, they saw the physical, the temporal, as being somehow in opposition against the, the spiritual. And, and so some wanted to kind of crack the code of this heightened super spirituality. And, and they wanted this higher life with God to, 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 to see their spiritual part of them set free from the body and from all things temporal. And so they started looking for their identity, for that sense of enoughness with the Lord and the, in, 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 in what they did or in what kind of situations of life they could arrange for themselves. And in particular, as we saw last week, there was a faction, there was a group in the church that was assigning all kinds of religious and spiritual significance to sex and sexuality. And so it's not enough to be a Christian, they said. You have to be, if you want to truly be spiritual, if you want to truly be super spiritual, you need to be a celibate Christian. And so their, their motto, if you remember last week, was it's, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And that, 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 was, that was not just a preference of theirs. That was not some kind of pragmatic recommendation. You know, this will make your life easier. No, this, behind this was a conviction. You're, you're, you're incomplete. You're, you're deficient otherwise if you don't live by that. You're not enough with the Lord. You're not, you're not spiritual as, as you're supposed to be. And so you remember they apply this in different ways. And to the married believers, they said, you need to stop having sex and live as singles in your marriage. And if you can't do that, you need to divorce. And if you're married to an unbeliever, you need to divorce your unbelieving spouse. And so you're not contaminated by them. And if you're single, you dare you better dare not get, get married. You need, to, you need to seize that. And so just, just think of how this probably played out in the church at Corinth. Think of some of the ways. This, imagine the confusion and the disturbance and the, and the hurt and the conflicts that this was no doubt causing in the church there. Imagine being a godly young Christian woman and your husband comes home and he says, he says to you that you can no longer live together as husband and wife sexually. You can't do it. And why? Because we shouldn't be carnal, physical people. We're new creatures. We're new. We're, everything's new. We need to be more spiritual. And if you can't handle abstinence in the marriage, then, then we'll have to divorce. This was happening. In order to be enough for God, in order to have this higher spiritual life, we have to abstain from sex even in marriage. And so all of this was driven by this, this dangerous and deficient understanding that, that what Jesus did on the cross, it was great, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And Paul's coming back and again. So this kind of thing is wreaking havoc on the Corinthian church. And in this chapter, in this letter, he's, Paul's really pushing hard against that way of thinking. And so we saw last week, Paul responded to, to each of the different ways the, this, these kind of hyper-spiritual ones in Corinth were, were applying their motto. And now he's, he's sort of backing out of that and he's giving us the basic guiding principle that's behind everything he's told them and will tell them in this chapter. And so now, so in a chapter we said last week that's devoted to sex and marriage and celibacy and dealing with these issues, 
this, this shift to now to topics of circumcision and slavery, it, it may seem rather abrupt and forced uh, to, to us as we read it the first time. And so it may kind of seem like a rabbit trail, like Paul is now taking this detour for some strange reason, and he's going to move away from the main theme of the chapter, and he'll come back in a few verses in verse 25. That's not at all what's happening here. This isn't a break in the action. It's not a rabbit trail or just kind of filler in this chapter. This is central to what precedes it, what we looked at last week, and what's going to follow it. And we'll see next week that he's not wandering from the main theme. He's amplifying it. He's illustrating it. It's similar to what he does later in this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, the love chapter. So if you remember here in chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts and giving all of There's all this discussion and teaching on spiritual gifts. And he does the same thing in chapter 4 and then plopped right in the middle of his chapter 13. And it may seem like Paul's trying to give pastors a text to read at weddings or something like that. That's not it. That chapter 13, it's not, it's not like the halftime show of the big game, the Super Bowl of spiritual gifts talk. It is, it is actually, he's, he, in that chapter, he's laying the theological foundation for everything he says about gifts. And that's what's happening here as well. This, is, this isn't a, an aside. It is the very hub of the discussion on marriage and celibacy and singleness and sex and divorce that he's, he's in in this chapter. And so the basic structure is, is not difficult to see. You, you can probably pick up on this. There's this, there's this principle that's stated three times here. You see it in verse 17. It's stated the first time. Then he gives this illustration and explains it by referencing circumcision. Then he states the principle again in verse 20. Then he illustrates it and expands it by talking about slavery. And then he comes back and restates the principle one more time in verse 24. It's like a, I think like a club sandwich or something like that. You have this threefold repetition of this principle. It's kind of like the bread, you know, layered in through there. And then the meat and the cheese and whatever else is in there is, is, is between those statements of that principle. All right, now that I've made you hungry and myself hungry, let's get into it. Let's walk through this. So the first thing we see is just the principle stated. Let's just see what the, the, this guiding principle is. Verse, verse 17 you, you see the connection to what proceeds, so he's not, it's not a rabbit trail. He says he's only, or some of your translations may say nevertheless. So he said, uh, you know, he, he's urged the, the, unbeliever, or the, husband, the, the spouse of an unbeliever to stay in the marriage. If, if they choose to depart, then you can, you're free to remarry. But he says only, nevertheless, connecting this, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. If I could paraphrase it this way, because it's a difficult sentence to translate, and, and some of your translations may say, have this differently. But I think the simplest, the basic meaning is this, is as the Lord has assigned to you, and as the Lord has called you, live your life. Live your life. And that's the, that's the imperative here. It's, it's live, it's, or in the ESV, lead, your, lead the life, literally walk. There's a certain way, Paul's saying, we're, we're to conduct our lives, we're to live our lives, and, and we're to live our lives first as the Lord has assigned to us. What does that mean? That the, that the Lord in his providence, he, has, he is over the circumstances and the situations of our lives. He's, he's assigned them. It's, it's in his providence that he's put us in the places we are, and particularly when God called us to himself. So this doesn't mean that 
the, the God-assigned set of circumstances in our lives will never change. That's not his point. And this doesn't mean that, that there weren't people involved in creating uh, the situations of life that you're living in, sometimes very difficult situations that sinners weren't involved in that or, and that actual sin wasn't involved in the situations of life that you're in. That's not, that's, not, that's not at all the case. But what he's saying is even those things are not outside the ultimate rule of God. He's, he's assigned the place you live. Just think about this. We, we know this, but think about it. The, where, why you live here and not 1,500 miles elsewhere, 8,000 miles elsewhere across an ocean. The, the age and the time you live. Why, why in this century and not 800 years ago or 1,600 years ago? The, the, the culture, your, your culture, your ethnicity, your, your family, genealogy, your socioeconomic status, your, your physical health, and, and kind of your, 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 the, the, the way that your body is made, on and on and on. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're forever locked into that setting or situation, but you were, you were saved in a particular set of circumstances, external circumstances and life situations, and, and you're in a certain situation right now. But the main point here, and this is what we're going to see again and again here, is that you can thrive as a Christian right where you are. This is saying, live your life. And it's not because your circumstances are so wonderful that you can live your life now. No, it's because God's call is so powerful. And that's the key word in this whole section. You see it nine times in these verses here. Either the word call or calling or called. And you see it here in verse 17. As God has called us, live. The call of God is... It's, it's God's call to salvation. Some see kind of two separate calls, like a vocational call here. I don't think that's the point. I think it's consistent in this letter. You go back to chapter 1, verse 9, that we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a way of describing Christian conversion. It's the call of God. And, and what Paul's saying is the call of God, it, it transcends, it transformed all of our external circumstances. In other words, he's not saying we're called as Christians to be in certain conditions or like a vocation. And again, this is, you may have heard messages preached along these lines. And, and I understand I'm not saying there's no application to that. And this is Labor Day weekend. And so there may be sermons preached from this text on the importance of staying in your job, that kind of a thing. That, that's an application that people have to make from this. But that's not, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying we're called we're called in those situations. And so God's call came to us in a given social setting, providentially assigned by the Lord. But the emphasis here isn't on the circumstances. It's on the call of God, not on, our, not on those situations. And so it's the call of God that matters most. But we, those he calls, we have a story. We, we live in certain conditions, life conditions. And so the gracious and powerful call of God then what it, what it does is it, 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 makes, it makes all of those social status and social settings and, and all of those things irrelevant in terms of having any kind of religious or spiritual significance in our lives. You're not, listen, you're not better or worse off as a Christian. You're not better or worse off with God because of your life situation. 
because you're married or because you're single or because you're slave and, or you're free or you're circumcised or uncircumcised, you're rich, you're poor, you're educated, you're not, you're healthy, you're sick, you come from a big family or you were abandoned as a child. You're not better off or worse off with God because of any of those things. It's the call of God, not the circumstances that have been assigned to you that, that matter most. God's not limited by the situation of your life. He doesn't need some ideal situation a circumstantial situation to bless you. You don't need an ideal situation to enjoy the fullness of all that God has for you. Our, our life conditions, they don't detract and they don't enhance our standing before God, our enjoyment of God, or our usefulness to God. Not at all. And this is what he's saying. Isn't this wonderful? Now, I'm not saying that you always feel the goodness of this in your life. Because sometimes I know you're, you're, we can be in very challenging external circumstances and conditions of life. And Paul's not at all minimizing that, the, the real challenges that come with living in very difficult conditions. But he's saying, as a word of hope, the call of God transcends even that. Our hope, our focus isn't on, on the conditions of our lives good or bad, but on the shared call of God that we have in Jesus Christ. And again, in the context, remember Paul speaking to this church and they're being terribly misled. They're being told that their, their spirituality, their enoughness with God was being hindered by their current situation. And Paul says, no, 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 not at all. Married, single, divorced, widowed, it's the call of God that ultimately matters, not, not your marital status. That's, that's the point that he's driving home here. And so then in verse 20, so we'll skip down, we'll come back to verses 18, 19, and 20. He repeats the basic principle again. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Again, we're not, we're not to try and change our circumstances or life situations out of this felt need that, that such a change is required to somehow improve our standing before God, our relationship with the Lord. That's what the Corinthians were wanting to do. It doesn't mean we, we have to remain in those circumstances. It isn't a call to, you know, like uphold the status quo, the sanctity of the status quo. You just, wherever you're at now, wherever you're at when you were saved, you just need to stay there. And that's not at all what this is about. What he's saying is our circumstances don't hinder our calling to live as Christians. Point is, the point is that you do not have to change your life situation as a Christian. It's not that you may not change your life situation. Either way, it has nothing to do with our standing before the Lord. Again, a third time, verse 24. Look down there. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so he adds this important phrase here on this, the third time he repeats this. And, and, it, and it's that little phrase, with God, or before God. And, and those two words make a big difference, don't they? Because, because the Christ who calls you to live your life in your present circumstances, whether difficult or, or light, however difficult they may, they be, he is with you. He's beside you. He's before you. He's in you. You live before his face. In his presence, whatever your circumstances, he is always with you. And it's he alone who, who makes it possible to lead the life in the midst of that. And so here's the principle. Remain, remain as you are, 
Meaning there's no earthly status, no condition that's incompatible with our calling by God. Don't think you have to change, change the circumstances of your life to sort of level up with the Lord and to get on a higher spiritual plateau. That's what he's saying. That's the principle. Now he illustrates this principle. Second, the, this, the principle illustrated. And then we'll see it applied. So verse 18 and 19, he, he uses circumcision as an example of, uh, to, to, to reinforce this principle he's just laid down. So verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Then let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Yikes. Uh, this was a thing, and there's a Greek word that, that is used to describe this agonizingly painful procedure. And then he goes on, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So what he's saying, there's, there's no spiritual benefit to changing this. Going either way won't put you on a, on a higher level with the Lord. Why is that? Verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, Paul, for Paul to say that circumcision doesn't count for anything is quite a statement. As a Jewish background believer here, this was, this was that God-instituted bodily mark which distinguished the Jew from the non-Jew. And, and for the Jew, this, this was their key definition of personal identity. This is what made them who they were. This was who they were. They described themselves, how? As the circumcised. They described the Gentiles, what? As the uncircumcised. This was everything. 200 years earlier, the Jews had been martyred, slaughtered for circumcision. There was a king, Antiochus Epiphanes, 200 years before, who had, who had decreed that every circumcised baby boy and his mother be strangled to death. Tens of thousands of people murdered. And yet the Jews, they continue to circumcise their children, basically giving them a death sentence. Why? Because this had to do with this covenant mark of being the people of God. Circumcision was everything. And now Paul can say, circumcision doesn't mean anything. Why? Because what he's saying is God's call in Christ, it voids all former classifications that assign worth to people based upon external Externals like this. God accepts us as we are in Christ. That's his point. Altering our bodies will not do a thing to make us more acceptable to God. Why? Because Romans 3.30 says that God justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. No, no, this, and as believers, this is, this is writing to Christians here, but he's saying that's not going to make us more saved, more spiritual, more right with God as Christians, whether we are circumcised, uncircumcised, it doesn't do a thing. Instead, what matters is what? It's, it's keeping the commandments of God. Now, again, in the context, Paul could have gone on and said, and this is his point, he's talking about marriage and celibacy. He could have said, marriage is nothing, singleness is nothing. It, th those things won't make a difference in terms of making you better off with God. 
He, he, does, he trusts that the Corinthians and us will make that connection. But, but that's the point he's making. Instead, again, what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Now, interestingly, one of the Old Testament commandments is what? Circumcision. And so his, his point here is simply obeying the Lord, obeying his commands, supremely loving God, loving our neighbor. It's, it's something that a Christian can do in any condition of life he's in. Circumcised, uncircumcised, married, single, slave, free. It doesn't matter. What's important is not that the external circumstances of your life that you're in and you need to change those. What's important is how you live in that state. As those who are called, Galatians 6, verse 15, Paul says something very similar to this. And he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision or anything, but what? A new creation is what matters. Now that God has broken in upon you in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, calling you from death to life by his grace, and he's given you this new identity in Jesus Christ, what really matters now is living out your new creation in a life that pleases the Lord. And you can do that in any circumstance, any condition of life. Again, married, single, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free. That's the second illustration, example he gives here. So in verse 21, he, he shifts from something that had to do with kind of the ethnic status to something that has to do with social status. He says in verse 21, were you a bondservant? That's a muted way of saying, were you a slave? Were you a slave when called? He doesn't say, were you called to be a slave? He says, were you a slave when God called you? Do not be concerned about it. Now, now this example in particular would really have, 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 have stricken a chord with his readers here. A third of Corinth's population, it said, were slaves. Another third of the population were former slaves, freedmen. And so to the Christian slaves in the church there, what does Paul say? He doesn't say, don't seek your freedom. He says what? Don't be concerned about it. Don't let it bother you. Now, that's easy to say. <laughs> there were plenty of things to be concerned about if you were a slave in that time. Now, I, I'm not going to linger on this. I, I've taught in Ephesians on, on slavery and, and, and what the Bible has to say about this. And I know there are questions that come up because of our old nation's awful history here. But slavery in Paul's day, it was nothing like the, the race-based, chattel, man-stealing kind of slavery that, that was a cancer in this nation for 200 years and that we still are feeling the effects of that evil. This is not, this is not the same. And, and this passage has sadly been used, as you might suspect, by, wrongly, but it's been used historically by pro-slavery Christians, preachers who are slave owners to justify this evil. And, 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 but Paul's he's not at all writing to keep slaves in their place. That's why, that's why I, I emphasize that. If we read this a moment ago, he says, were you a slave when called? Not were you called to be a slave, but that's how it's often read. If this passage is ever used, if you hear this passage used to justify keeping someone in bondage, you, have, you are hearing the exact opposite meaning of the passage. That's not the point. This is to be wonderfully liberating for God's people. 
And so, but to, slay, to say that slavery was different in Paul's day is not to say that it was good or that it was easy or right. If you were a slave, you were not legally a person. Therefore, you had no legal or human rights in that culture. You were classified as a thing. You were counted as living, a living piece of property to another human being. And that consciousness would be with you every moment of every day, wouldn't it? They owned you. They could dispose of you as they wished. They could sell you. They could treat you badly. You were a slave. You were not free. Now, many were treated, well, far better than most slaves in this country, but they still lacked a basic human worth in the eyes of those who were free. That's the reality. And so it's not hard to imagine that when, when slaves, when the Lord called people in that condition of slavery and, he, and, and slaves became believers, they thought maybe they also lack worth before God, at least compared to those who are free. What does Paul say? No, not at all. You're not a second-class Christian. Your life with God is not crippled by your circumstances of life, your life condition. This doesn't define you ultimately. It's the call of God on your life that defines you. He called you as a slave. That's what matters. He called. At at this point now, Paul breaks the pattern that we saw in the first example, and he he offers this exception at the end of verse 21. He says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. So he's basically saying here, verse 21, don't don't worry about being a slave in the sense of thinking that you're not complete in Christ if you're not free. You are enough in Christ. You can live fully for him in that condition. But if the opportunity presents itself to be free, by all means, take advantage of it. Freedom is preferable to slavery. Now again, remember the context here. Marriage, singleness. Remember what we saw last week, married to an unbeliever. He said, what the, what's the encouragement? You're not handicapped. You're not handicapped by this providence. You can thrive as a believer in that situation. You're not less than. I mean, to think in our own day, how, how maybe some wrongly think of singleness. We'll talk about this next week. We, what do we say? You're, you're waiting for your better half. Are we, are we, do we think that they're half a person until they're married? Paul's going to say, no. Single, married, you are, you are enough in the, with the Lord. You're complete. You're not deficient. Nothing wrong with you. And yet he also offers some exceptions. He says to the single, if you want to marry, though, that's fine. There's no problem in that. It won't mean you're more or less spiritual whether you're married or single. And he says to those who are married to an unbeliever and, and that unbeliever deserts him and he says, you're no longer bound to them. You can remarry. That's fine. There's, the, there's these exceptions. And so what he's saying though, essentially there's no spiritual benefit before God with singleness or marriage. Each has its advantages and challenges. We'll talk more about this next week. All right, back to verse 22. It says, for he who is called is in the Lord as a bondservant. Again, not called to be a slave, but called as a slave. There's a big difference. He is a freedman of the Lord. This is great. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant, a slave of Christ. So for the non-Christian slave, the, the fact of slavery governed his whole existence. 
He was a slave. He was not free, period. That's what mattered. But for the believing slave, there's this new perspective. His body is enslaved, but that doesn't prevent him from, from, prevent the Lord from meeting him and calling him in that awful condition. And so now in Christ, he's a freed man. And he knew his Christian brother who was free is now a slave of Christ. And so in the Lord, in the Lord, the categories of slave and free, they're, they're, they're seemingly irrelevant. And again, Paul's not minimizing the difficulty of being a slave in any context. Get your freedom if you can. But, the slave, to, but slave or free makes no difference at all in terms of our worth or standing before God. Both belong to Christ, and their social status has zero spiritual significance. It's the call of God in Christ that makes the difference. In the household of Christ, he's saying the slave and the free man, they sit together. The slave says to the free man, brother, I am free in Christ. And the free man says to the slave, he says, brother, I'm a slave of Christ. And then he says in verse 23, you, you were bought with a price. We've heard this language before, haven't we? Do not become bondservants of men. Now, Paul's not reversing what he just said. He, I, he's using this as a metaphor now. All the commentators agree with this for the most part. He's saying, don't now make yourselves a slave to the judgments and opinions of man. Because what? In that context, in that culture, and it's just like ours, the culture will, will either venerate or denigrate people, what? Based upon external circumstances. Their genealogy, their work, their career, their wealth, their education, their ethnicity, their social status, and on and on and on. But those worldly judgments, he's saying, they, they should not affect the Christian's view of their calling. What matters is the fact that they've been redeemed by Christ. You've been bought with a price. Don't be enslaved to the judgments of men. All right, quickly. Let's see this a principle applied, just in, in a few ways, in the few minutes we have remaining here. Let's apply it first to where we started. I asked the question, who are you? What makes you, you? Where do you find your sense of identity? Let's talk about identity. And we've made this point very clear already. But what matters most is not our, spirit, our, 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 our social standing. Slavery, freedom, circumcision, uncircumcision, married, single, and on and on. And what matters is being rightly related to God in Christ. That's, that's where we find our identity. That's what matters most, the call of God. But just like the Corinthians, we can look to other things to things other than Christ for, for that sense of enoughness before God. Maybe it's not celibate marriage. I don't hear that one often in the church today, but, but it might be marriage. It might be parenting. It might be education. It might be career. It could be any number of things, and some, some moral standard that we hold. And when we do that, we, we place a burden on marriages and upon parenting and children and health and career and other life situations that those weren't meant to bear. We're not to look to those things for identity. When we look for our identity and worth in those things, we, we'll never be satisfied. 
But the Lord is telling us, find your identity in the call of God in Christ. Root your significance there, and you'll be set free from this this intolerable burden, this impossible task of finding significance and worth and value in what you do or you don't do or what your life situation is or circumstances are. Find your identity there. Second, I think this relates strongly to community, to us, not just as individuals with the Lord, but to us together, doesn't it? Not only does this help us see ourselves rightly, but it helps us see others rightly. We're not, we're not above or below anyone else in the church. We're all members of Christ's household. We have our ways, don't we? We don't maybe not state them, we don't put them in the bylaws, but we have our ways of kind of ranking people. We have the, the external standards of, of the, the wider world that creep into the church, and we create our own versions of of a pecking order, a caste system in the church. But what is, getting this, it frees us to love one another rather than judge one another by some man-made standards. Don't see people in a different condition of life, situation of life than you are as being less mature, or less spiritual, or incomplete, or deficient. This also frees us to love one another instead of being envious of one another. I mean, don't, don't we think like this? Man, if only I had blank like they do, then I would love God more, uh, enjoy my life with him more, pray more, serve him more, be a growing, fulfilled Christian. We look at others and we look at their life situations and we're envious and we think, if, that, if my life would just change so that it could be like theirs, oh, then it, then it would happen. I would, be, I would be on another plane with the Lord, another level. No, 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 no. Paul's saying, no, in whatever station you're in, leave, live your life as one who's called. It also frees us to love one another rather than to fear one another. We just talked about this a moment ago in verse 23 there. No, no longer enslaved to the opinions of people, the fear of man, but instead we're servants of one another. Last way I want to apply this is just in terms of activity. Identity, community, and activity. So we're no longer working hard to to earn our acceptance before God or to maintain that or to get to another spiritual level uh, by by what we do. Our confidence isn't in our performance or in our life situation or external circumstances. Our confidence is in the call of God and Christ, the fact that we've been bought with the price. But here's what happens then. It doesn't lead to passivity. It doesn't lead to to just maintaining status quo and just kind of just doing nothing dumbly. No, now we're free to actively serve and love others and obey God. We can, we can now keep the commandments of God like we were made to. We can go, we can pursue, we can change, we can make a difference, we can serve, we can better ourselves, not out of a sense of trying to earn God's approval, but because we already have God's approval in Jesus. It frees us to be active, to run. Why? Because we've been, we've been bought with a price. Bought with a price, and we saw earlier, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Actively look for ways to glorify, to draw attention to God with every, every part of your being. And so what is it that makes all of the difference? The same thing that Paul said throughout this letter and will continue to say through this letter. We've said it from the beginning and I'll keep saying it till we finish chapter 16. 
that everything, everything that happens in this letter, Paul's coming back to the cross of Jesus Christ, isn't he? He wants us to think about every aspect of life, all of the messy stuff of life. And there was a lot of messy stuff in the church at Corinth. There's a lot of messy stuff in our lives and in our church. And he says, I want you to think about everything through the lens of the gospel, through Christ crucified. That's no exception in this chapter. It's basically dead center, geographically center in this chapter here. What does he say? You, you were bought with a price. He can't go long at all without coming back to this, can he? Christ gave himself to make you his. He purchased you with his own blood. And in light of that, this is the command. Lead, lead the life. Live your life as God has assigned the circumstances of your life when he called you and where you're at now. Whatever that is doesn't mean they'll always be that way, but as he's assigned the circumstances of your life and as God has called you to himself through that redemptive work of Jesus Christ, live your life. Married, single, blue-collar, white-collar, rich, poor, healthy, sick, young, old, live where you're at in view of God's call. I know we, we have this tendency to think, well, again, if only, if all of those if onlys, if, if, if just if this would happen, then once this pandemic's over, you know, if we could just get past this, then it'll be better. Or as a student, if I could, when I graduate, then those of you that have been home for months now and watching this online and you're sick of it. And you, you, every, every month you keep getting this governor, or the governor keeps giving another order that's saying you need to stay home. You're saying, if just, if just then, if then this is over, my encouragement, live your life as one who's called in the circumstances that you're in. There's no deficiency in that. Let's pray. Father, we... We beg you for the help to do just that. We confess, Lord, that we, we often trade our rest and our freedom and the contentment that's found in knowing that our identity is not derived from the things we do or the things that we abstain from. It's not in the circumstances of our life, the situations and conditions we're in. It's derived from Jesus. Would you forgive us for missing, mixing that up? And would you help us to turn back to you to remember that there's only real freedom in Christ. And so, Father, we, we, we beg you for that help, that you would help us to trust in you, to rest in you, and to live for you. Hear us now, Lord. Draw near to us. Have mercy on us, Lord, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.